from CNU 23 in Dallas, this is the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, this is Chuck Marone, live from CNU 23 in Dallas. Uh, sitting across from me at the table now, I've got Cynthia Nikitin from uh, the Project for Public Spaces, PPS, out of New York. You work out in New York? Yes, I do. Awesome. Uh, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, thank you, Chuck. I'm delighted to be here. PPS is one of my absolute favorite organizations. I... Uh, have been following the work you guys do for years. How exciting is it to to work in that place with the kind of creative, crazy people you have doing the stuff all over the world that you guys do? Well, it's it's wonderful, and um, I've been at PPS since 1992. Wow. Okay. Um, and. It's just, it's been an amazing ride. Um, we just celebrated 40 years about a month and a half ago. Wow. And, uh, you know, we've seen a tremendous transformation just in the world and in placemaking as this kind of quiet movement um, that has been taking hold in thousands of cities across the U.S. and hundreds of cities around the world um, in a way that we never really anticipated and at a speed recently that is really, um, it's really quite amazing to us. It has to be very rewarding because PPS was, you know, a, a long time ago. I mean, you, you guys were in the wilderness for a while doing this kind of stuff. And to have it kind of take off and become more mainstream, there's got to be a certain level of vindication for the hard work you guys did decades ago. Well, it's not vindication so much as it is... Affirmation. Maybe. Affirmation yeah, is yeah, a better yeah. word, yeah. Um, and validation. And also, you know, the fact that we were ahead of the times for many years and um, many of the projects that we worked on, you know, eight years ago are now finally being built. And struggles and fights and battles that we were having, like in New York City, to put in mid-block crosswalks, which was absolutely, you know, unheard of, um, in 2008 are happening now. So we feel that the stars are aligning. Um, we feel that political leadership, municipal leadership around the country is really coming, is understanding a lot more clearly what it is that their citizens want um, and how to create lively, vibrant, resilient, sustainable cities, yeah. um, which is, you know, in, the, in, in much the same way that Strong Towns is doing. Oh, yeah, It's absolutely. just been a wake-up call recently, like this aha moment, a light bulb has gone on. Um, and the things that we kind of take for common sense um, and have always thought were common sense um, are really kind of coming into, into their own. People are recognizing some basic, very simple, you know, principles that great cities thrive because it, so it's about creating places that people want to be and where people are welcome, um, where places are accessible, where everyone has the right to be in the city and the right to the public realm. Now, you guys from New York City... Uh, you do the, the big city stuff really well. And, and I've seen a lot of the stuff that you've done in New York City, and it's fantastic. But you also work in a lot of small towns and a lot of rural areas. 
I know there's a program you guys are working on right now with the NEA, I think it is. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that a little bit? Because I think it'd be interesting for people to hear just that broad spectrum of yeah. stuff that you guys do. Um, yeah, we are very pleased um, to have an ongoing contract with the National Endowment for the Arts to run their Citizens Institute on Rural Design. They also run the Mayor's Institute on City Design. Um, most people know them for their Our Town grants for art projects. But the Citizens Institute on Rural Design, or CERD, as we like to call it, is really focused on providing design and technical assistance to rural communities that are facing a particular design challenge and don't have access to the expertise and the resources to make the right decisions, just either because of geography, accessibility, proximity, or not even knowing where to begin to get the answers to their questions. So we provide um, some small awards, uh, some financial support for them to convene technical workshops, and we bring in expertise from around the country to address specific issues of interest and import to these communities. Um, It's a competitive process. There's an application process, so the next round we'll probably release the application in September. Um, We now have a two-year agreement with the NEA, so we'll be doing six to eight workshops in the next two years. We've typically been doing four at a time. And um, it's been really exciting because the issues are the same. What's different is the scale. Yeah, yeah. The scale is really is really a big issue. Um, and the fact that folks don't know who at the university to call or who to call in, in state government or county government or what resources are available to them even at the federal level or even online. So part of our work is to kind of bring rural design practitioners and artists together with these communities and to connect these communities to the folks that are doing phenomenal work um, in, in rural areas. It, it seems to me, it is, oh, I grew up in a small town and I still Brainerd. live in a small town. Brainerd, yep. I know all about <laughs> have Brainerd. You, you've been, have you been? I haven't been to Brainerd, Okay, no. but I know that in your organization, uh, the Brainerd Lakes area has some special meaning. Um, okay. One of the things that I, I see in large cities that's different than, than small rural areas is what, what I call the margin for error. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when you are talking a city the size of New York, mm-hmm. you could screw up on a large scale and there's enough margin for error where things can work out because you can come back and fix things at some point, right? But in a small town, there's almost not enough there there at times where a, a, a one bad design decision, one bad mistake can, can cost a place for a long time. Well, it depends on the, on the scale, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. of it. If it's about, um, one developer buying up everything downtown, you know, um, and bringing in businesses or, or uses that are not connected to the community or don't support the community ca- character, you know, that, that can be, um, a problem. Right. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, if you have, we were working in Lancaster County, Nebraska a couple of months ago, and if you've got a town of 200 people and you're 45 minutes outside of Lincoln, you have 200 people, you only need to get, and you have a great idea, you only have to convince 199 other people <laughs> to go for it. Right. Right. So right. Um, in terms of flexibility, the decision making is easier. The regulatory framework is somewhat is significantly limited. Sometimes it's non-existent. Some communities don't have zoning, for right. example. Right. Um, so the flexibility is there. You know, the ability to actually try things out and make mistakes and then change direction. The smaller communities are much more nimble 
in that way than larger urban areas are. Um, but they're also more challenged in terms of limited access to resources or to those big dollars or wanting to attract, you know, folks to come and actually help them revitalize um, their main street. But what we've been telling them is to really look inside, is to really look at the resources that they have, human, social, um, place capital, their authenticity, um, their elders, their seniors, folks that are have lived there for a long time, um, that have, may have means to actually support economic development, to actually band together to buy that building, to bring in the bakery that everybody wants to have on Main Street where they can all have their coffee. They have the ability to kind of coalesce and work cooperatively in a way that larger cities don't. And in smaller communities, you have people that have been there for generations right. um, and that are raising families there. And so one of the challenges in rural communities is to keep young people there or when they come back from university to find a place for them where they can actually live and grow and thrive in those community and assume those leadership roles. Right. If you do have 200 people and everyone's on every committee, people get very burnt out. And we said, so what are your college students doing? You know, what is the high school valedictorian? Why aren't they on the city council? Right. You know, how do you, how do you tap that social capital that's there in terms of young people and older people and all of the resources and wisdom that they have to invest in that community? So, Really look to yourselves before you look elsewhere. How, what's the reaction been to that? Because I, you know, I, 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 having grown up in small, it, it is very true. The same people are on every committee. In a sense, they get burned out because they're doing everything. The people who aren't involved get disenfranchised because they see the same people making the same dumb decisions over and over and over. Yeah. And there's a there's a there's a, a kind of a creeping dysfunction sometimes that 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 comes into some of these small towns when it, it becomes an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. You guys are bringing in new ideas, new faces, but you're leaving behind the same people. What's been the response to that? And, and how has that kind of transformation mm -hmm. happened? Well, we find we've been very fortunate that the communities that we work with through CERD are actually energized at the end, you know, of a workshop, and they may may walk in the first day very skeptical and not talking to us or to each other, yeah. and then by the end of two and a half days, we can't get them to stop talking. Um, it's really like lifting a veil. Um, it's validating who they are and what they're doing, and the folks that we bring in as subject matter experts have tremendous experience working with communities just like them, and they can point to successes, and they can point to tools, techniques, resources, um, steps that these communities can take fairly easily to move things forward. So where a community may say, we need a new water tower, and we have to pave our roads, and we need all this new infrastructure, and, you know, we look at, well, what are your assets? What do you have to start with? You know, what is valuable about what you have, and how do you value what it is that you have? So it becomes less about, you know, these kind of big-picture projects and bringing in a lot of investment to, we have all these fabulous trails. And they don't really connect to the schools or the homes or our downtown shopping district. And why don't we just get our trails to connect to one another? And why don't we do things at the trailheads? And then we can support non-motorized transportation and we can get people out walking and, and hiking and biking. Um, and we can sort of start building up incrementally and cohesively rather than kind of top down in a fragmented 
way. So it's about going from looking at project to project to project to really understanding the place yeah. and all the elements that they have that are actually working, right. but that may be taken for granted or they may have overlooked them um, or stopped valuing them. It's so hard because in a city of, in a city of 200, for example, uh, 10% population growth is two people. Or, I'm sorry, it's 20, 20, it's 20 people. people. Here's 20 my, people. I'm the engineer with all the It's 20 people. It's like five families, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that's not a, that's not like a huge, a, a huge hurdle to come over. But yet, oftentimes we're talking about, like, we had a, a small town, uh, about an hour south of us, uh, population like 450. And they subsidized a brand new subdivision that came in. That had it all filled up, and this was, of course, they did it in 2006, right? There's two houses in it. Mm. Had it filled up, it would have been another 650 people. Th these are the kind of things that I think the top-down kind of approach mm -hmm. leads to. Mm -hmm. And what I find so invigorating about what you guys do is it's, it's really more of a, all right, take the assets we have, and how do we deploy them to have that... 5%, 10% instead of try to shoot the moon mm -hmm. in a sense. Yeah, and it's, it's just that the incremental growth that you're always speaking about, yeah. um, which then doesn't overtax the infrastructure that they have, and as they build their tax base, they're able to then afford to expand right. um, those things. But they, it's a hard sell because they do see the property tax dollars, and they have communities. People are leaving Lincoln. They want to have a bit of a more rural existence. They want to have a little bit more land. So there is pressure on these towns to grow and to expand and to build more housing. Um, but at the same time, they also need to build their retail base, their commercial base, so that there's more of a balance to keep those dollars in their community. It's The communities in Lancaster County, they were 12 of them, and they say, we're bedroom communities. And the connotation of that is like people sleep here and they spend their money everywhere else. Right. And I said, drop the bedroom yeah. as the adjective. You are communities and you've got the residential, but what about the retail, the commercial, you know, the businesses? What about these other sectors, the recreational that you have, that people are coming here for their quality of life? You need to kind of invest in bringing that up right. um, so that you have kind of a fuller package and a real quality of life that benefits your residents as well as newcomers. How, how does the creative placemaking fit into that incremental mindset? You know, right now, infrastructure, I mean, as an engineer, we would go to a city, we had a toolbox of things. Whatever your problem was, we had a, a road or a pipe or, or mm -hmm. something that could solve that problem, even if it was a, a you know, a social problem or something completely mm -hmm. not related. We could find a project that, dealt with that, yeah. right? And of course, it never solved the problem, but it got us a big project and it moved the city on to something else. And creative placemaking, to me, uh, is, is, is a different set of tools. Mm -hmm. How does it tie into, in small cities and big cities, kind of the next phase of, of maybe investing in place? Why is that so important? Well, it brings a different set of actors to the table and it capitalizes on a a different set of community assets. So creative placemaking is really looking about putting the arts kind of at the center of placemaking and of community revitalization. And, you know, we're always, we're always caution people that when any one discipline dominates, whether it's engineers or artists or architects or landscape architects, the community, the community voice is diminished when a discipline kind of takes over. So creative placemaking, the way that we understand it, the way that we practice it and believe in it, is that 
the arts and culture and the assets, that creative element that resides in every human being and in a community is what is brought to the forefront. And the best creative placemakers tap into that community, collective community creativity and social capital to make change happen and helps people solve the problems for themselves, but kind of using a different side of their brain right. than they're used to. Right. Um, and artists have always been amazing in terms of facilita facilitating community input and going into communities to start asking questions as part of their practice in a way that engineers and architects were never really taught to do. Um, but many artists, not all, that is part of their work, that they want to understand the place, they do investigation, they kind of do um, some sort of creative en engagement, um, they create something and then they reflect on it to see how effective it was. But it's very much a reflection of the people and the place in which they're working. Um, there have been some wonderful projects where artists, you know, start um, with a project that turns into something that becomes housing, you know, that becomes a transportation center, that becomes um, an arts and cultural facility, even if it's just a, sm a small building. Um, they, artists are also very um, helpful to have communities that don't have a voice express their voice to the rest of the city. And I'm thinking Springboard for the Arts, you know, in St. Paul with the Green Line Project, oh, yeah. right. you know, is a really fabulous example of that, of celebrating these communities of culture and their history and their assets and their creativity to the rest of the city and as a way of welcoming people into their communities and say, hey, get off the train and come learn about who we are and we will learn about about who you are as well. Um, but artists can't do it alone. Historic preservationists can't do it alone. Engineers can't do it alone. It's really about having all of these disciplines get out of their silos and work more collaboratively and work with the communities. And we always say the community is the expert, and we often say the community is the client. Yeah. You know, because these are public projects, most of them paid for by public dollars. And we try to help the community be a better client, to be a real partner um, at the table. And artists are very supportive of that that way of working and thinking. Now, let me ask you the hard the hard question. Um, I, I'm living in a city, and I see the city struggling to fix the road out in front of my place, and I see the city struggling to maintain the sidewalk, and I see the city laying off uh, police officers and firefighters. And, and now, you know, I see the city embarking on a creative placemaking project with a bunch of artists. And, uh, you know, what, 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 this seems frivolous. This seems like it's not getting at the core, mm -hmm. uh, you know, problems we're facing. Why, why is it so important? Well, investing in the arts is an economic development strategy. You know, fixing roads is maintenance. Police, that's maintenance. Like, that's, that's what cities are supposed to do. You know, that's the bottom line in terms of service delivery that they're supposed to offer. But those don't necessarily create jobs. Those don't necessarily provide um, young people with a way to develop their artistic interests and abilities. Um, they don't attract other folks to come to the community. You know, Americans for the Arts has been documenting the incredible investment and economic benefit that the arts have had in cities across America for years. I mean, it's, it's millions of dollars, it's billions of dollars, and even in smaller, smaller communities, um, you know, the arts are an amazing economic driver in that piece. And it's the difference, um, as my colleague Rick Hauser um, from Main Street LLC says, it's the difference between um, spending and investing, and cities are looking at, you know, we have to spend money on maintaining roads. We have to spend money 
on fixing sidewalks. It's no, you are investing in your transportation network, you know, for the longer term. And it's that kind of mindset that what you're doing, does it, is it going to have a spin-off benefit in the future? And in terms of arts and culture, the answer is a resounding yes. Now, I, I'm a fan, I, I, I'm a fan of Richard Florida. And he spoke here at the CNU a few years ago. I know there's a lot of people who think his message is oversimplified in some ways, but I, I buy into the, I think what the core essence is that, uh, where you have creative people, you tend to have vibrant, productive economies. I see that in big cities, mm -hmm. the ones that embrace, if you want to call it the creative class, if you want to call it the, the, the artistic, you know, element. Uh, I see those places and those neighborhoods mm -hmm. thriving, but I also see it in the smallest towns around. Gr Grand Marais, Minnesota, way up on the, uh, the, the peak of the Minnesota in the Arrowhead region on the north side of Lake Superior. Tiny little town. I don't know if you've ever been there or not. If you ever get a chance, go. It's one of the funkiest little places you'll ever see. They have an artist colony. They actually have the highest, GD, the highest PhD per capita Ten years ago when I did this study there mm -hmm. in the country. Very interesting place, but has embraced the arts as a central core part of their community. And wow, it has made all the difference, not only in the, the, the economics and the, the opportunity in the city, but mm -hmm. just in the culture and the community as well. I mean, this is a, this is a very isolated place, but yet a tight-knit and, and very unique kind of place. How important is that? If, if you're profiling cities around the country, mm -hmm. how much of an indicator is that creative class, that artist community, in terms of what you see as the, the potential of a place? It's very high. I mean, the, the creative, well, we don't really talk about the creative class so much as we talk about sort of creative actors. Um, I think that's a good way to put it, yeah. And creative placemakers. So we were working... Um, with this fabulous group in Alton, Missouri, um, the Oregon County Food Producers and Artisans Co-op. And Alton has about 800 people. It's in southeastern um, Missouri. And the artisans, food producers, it's, it's everyone. It's people who grow organic, grass-fed um, beef. It's people who make candles. It's people who have alpaca, and they weave, and there's jewelers and bakers, and they have fiddle music and a library. Um, they show films. They are the heart of that community. Um, they have 150 members, and they draw from the entire region. Um, they also provide access to healthy food. They're, they're, they're 45 minutes from the nearest Walmart. Um, so that kind of combination of art and culture and food and music and history and folklore and producers and makers and doers who are actually sustaining themselves, you know, as an are then investing in their downtown, in their community. The dollars stay local, and it is really the heart and soul of that town. And uh, we were helping them. They are buying the tavern next door that's been out of business, turning that into um, a full-blown co-op that will be an economic engine, really, for, for Oregon County. Um, so it's it's... These are vibrant, active, incredibly zealous nuts, you know, a yeah. lot of these artists. This, um, this seems a lot like, it's though, a, But it's a sign of intelligent life. Th um, that's, okay, maybe that's what I'm getting at. Th this seems, and, and, and I'm a little biased. I, 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 am, I am guilty sometimes of looking back with too much nostalgia at, at the way cities used to be. 
um, because they weren't, it wasn't all great. But what did exist was this really interesting ecosystem of, of artisans and craftspeople. Uh, in one of his books, Nassim Taleb talked about the way that like the phonograph and music is transformed over time. He said, if you went back 100 years ago, every city had great musicians because you couldn't have replicated, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you couldn't download the latest song. Now there's a handful of musicians who are filthy rich because they're really great and we listen to their stuff. But every local city doesn't have this music culture that 100 years ago they would have because everybody wanted entertainment, right? But even going back further than that, um, you had to play. If you wanted to hear music, you had to buy the sheet music and play it yourself. You had to to learn how to play that fiddle. You had to learn how to play that guitar. You had to get together with people and, and make music. Right. And so... Sometimes I think, and this is maybe the critique of of, uh, of, of Richard Florida's work a little bit. I, I love his work. But when we talk creative classes, if it's a, a narrow band of people, what you're describing is really a broad swath. Like everybody has a little bit of creativity to it. How do we unleash that? Mm-hmm. Whether it's my grandpa woodworking or my, my father gardening or mm-hmm. me playing music, it's mm-hmm. it's all part of that. Right. That spectrum. And it's also validating that. And the work we were doing in eastern Kentucky and central Appalachia um, was about that. This is the, the future of Kentucky in a post-coal economy. Yeah. You know, it's art and culture. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Um, it's, there's an arts as an economic driver. There's a house resolution that was passed. And it's really about looking at people that have these crafts and these skills, teaching them how to use that to earn a living creating the economy and the ability to sell their, their work, to get materials, to hire um, um, apprentices to help them get their product out, and to turn that hobby, you know, into a livelihood right. as one level of sort of creating an economically sustainable um, population while they seek other ways of kind of gener- re- revitalizing the economy. You guys do... Some just fun work. I mean, I, I, I told Ethan a while back, I said, I, if I could change places with anybody in this country, it might be you. Because <laughs> I think you guys do some of the, the most interesting things around. Is there anything we haven't covered that you want to make sure we talk about? Um, sure. Well, the reason I'm in Dallas, yeah. in addition to speaking at the CNU conference tomorrow morning at 9, um, is we just did a convening of our third round of Southwest Airlines Heart of the Community grantees. Right. And we've been working with Southwest Airlines for three years now um, on this Heart of the Community program uh, where Southwest funds um, us to fund communities to create great public spaces in the cities where they fly. So it is a grant of it's funds for programming, amenities, for management, and also for PPS to provide technical assistance to help these places come to life. And we are now, we are just announced six cities, so that brings us up to 13. So we just had meetings with, it was Albuquerque, Fort Myers, Jacksonville, Milwaukee, St. Louis, and Portland, Maine. Um, and this is a, a program sort of in the community outreach, CSR, a part of Southwest, um, where they want to help take placemaking mainstream because they put people first and they take, pe- they take people to the places they love. And they understand how important places are. Yeah. And they're working with us because we understand how to work with communities to create those great places. Yeah. So. That's awesome. Cynthia Nikitin, 
Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and enjoy the rest of your CNU. Thank you, Chuck. My pleasure. that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.